The sermon text for today is found in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Listen as I read God's word. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem in the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clouds and lied him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch of their flock at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. The Lord, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom has favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet today, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. And in our household, if you find a present that looks like a three-year-old wrapped it, if it is in a brown paper bag that is folded over and stapled, that is a gift that I made. (laughs) That is a gift that I wrapped. Or if it's just in a bag and some tissue paper stuffed on top of it, that's how I do it. Otherwise, it's like you can tell whichever gifts. So Dave... Congratulations on knowing how to wrap gifts. Before we get into the message this morning, I want to give a brief update about uh, Be Rich. So each year, uh, at the end of the year, we do what's called the Be Rich Stewardship Drive. If you've never heard of this, if this is your, you know, if you're uh, here this morning and you're newer to Elmwood, uh, each year we look ahead to the future and try and discern where does God want us to invest over this next year, what area of ministry should we invest in, and so we raise money for that. Uh, this year, our Be Rich is something uh, a little bit less exciting. We found out when we had our roof replaced this last year that there was like a whole bunch of uh, water damage to the subroof and other things that we found out were not done right, and so we had to fix all this stuff. And of course, that was uh, somewhat expensive. 
So this year, we said we are going to do the best we can to raise as much money as we can to cover the cost of those roof repairs. And whatever we don't uh, raise, you know, sort of in cash on hands, we will take out a, you know, small loan to be able to cover that. And so we, uh, we asked for $30,000, which is a stretch for a church of our size. And as of last night when I checked, Elmwood has pulled together $30,586. Uh, so thank you. Uh, thank you to those of you who have given to, uh, to this project. Uh, our goal is to meet, uh, the goal was to meet $30,000, which we did. Um, but as we've been trying to say regularly, the project is more than that. <laughs> so if you're here this morning and you're like, hey, I haven't given yet, but we already met that goal, that's okay. There's still time to give. And there's still uh, some uh, funds to be made up in that. And so uh, we just would uh, ask you to consider how God would have you continue to invest so that Elmwood can remain a faithful gospel presence in this area. And uh, if you would uh, be willing to contribute to that, uh, we'd be so grateful and so honored uh, for you to participate in that. A couple ways you can do that. Number one, right out at the connections table, there's some envelopes that look like this that say be rich on them. You can fill that out and drop it in the offering box, or you can go on our online giving platform and choose be rich from the drop down donation menu. But just wanted to uh, share that good news with you this morning. Uh, With that being said, let me pray for us, and then we will uh, spend some time looking at this passage together. God, this morning we stand in awe of the magnitude of your love for us that has been shown in the sending of your Son. Amidst all of the Christmas happenings, God, we ask that you would help us to be uh, mindful always of the meaning of Christmas and the significance of the events that took place that night 2,000 years ago. We pray, God, that as we think about this passage, that you would help us understand it and that you would help us to leave here today with a greater appreciation and a a new depth of uh, wonder at the gift of you sending your son. So help us now, Holy Spirit, we pray. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The way we experience Christmas can change dramatically over time. I remember when I was a kid being somewhat disappointed, very disappointed actually, when I would get things like socks for Christmas. Uh, Sometimes it was my parents. Sometimes it was my very well-intentioned grandmother who would get us socks or who would get us clothes and to, to see the look on her face and how excited she was to give out these clothes that she picked that we were just like, have to try and figure out how to like not have our emotions be on her face because we're like just kind of disappointed that it's not our style or whatever. And she was so well-intentioned and so good-hearted. And uh, it just, you know, as functional as that was, it just wasn't something that a seven-year-old boy was going to be super excited about, even though she tried. Uh, Now, as I have grown older, my experience of Christmas is uh, very different than it was. One of the reasons I look forward to Christmas is because there's going to be things like socks, in all likelihood, in my socking. And the reason is because I know, as an adult who has to pay bills and stuff, that neither socks nor money grows on trees. And (laughs) someone's got to buy those socks. Either it's going to come out of my allowance... Or it's going to come when someone gives me socks. And so my experience of Christmas in that way uh, has been uh, greatly altered from what it was when I was a kid. And I just enjoy functional things for Christmas now instead of just exciting toys and such. 
the way that we experience Christmas can change dramatically over time. And part of that is because the older you get and the more life experience you have, you bring all of those life experiences into every single new Christmas season. It's like it, it, it accumulates over time. And so when you come into Christmas, as you get older, the more life experience you have, the more that you've been through, the more complicated things like Christmas and the holiday season can be. So maybe you look back with uh, great fondness on, on food memories, food traditions in your family. You know, whether it's the Christmas cookies or whether it's the, you know, Christmas Eve dinner, some special place that you went or some meal that you had, a Christmas morning brunch or whatever that was. You just look back with great fondness on that. But now, maybe as you've grown older, uh, the thought of hosting and all the food-related stuff at Christmas just kind of stresses you out. Because you're like, man, it's got to be, you know, the table's got to be set nice and it's got to, you know, the food's all got to be good and it's got to be out at the same time and it's got to be Instagram picture worthy. And so all of a sudden your experience of food now at Christmas is not like, oh, this is so good. I get to eat Christmas cookies. You're like stressed out about it. Or it may be that you remember big family gatherings and there's all the aunts and the uncles and the cousins and everyone. And, and as, you know, from everything you knew, everything was relationally right in the world. And now as you grow older, maybe you're coming into this Christmas season and there's conflict or there's uh, tension or there's frustration in uh, your family or your uh, immediate family, your extended family. And so Christmas uh, can feel something like maybe a ticking time bomb where you just kind of wonder, you're like, okay, well, who's going to be there? You know, is so-and-so going to be there? And what is that person going to say? And what are they going to do? And how's everyone going to, how are we going to like mitigate disaster? at Christmas or at Thanksgiving or whatever it is. And all of a sudden those relationships that you look back on are now like you experience those very different now. Or maybe it's that this Christmas season, you are coming to this season with waves of grief over the loss of a spouse, over the loss of a parent, over the loss of a child, over the loss of someone you love. And now Christmas, which always used to be this wonderful, joyful time is now this sort of stinging, painful reminder of someone who's not there at the table with you. And so your experience of Christmas has changed dramatically over time. Maybe it's that Christmas comes and it goes each year and yeah, it's fine. It's fine. It's all good, you know? All the Christmas cookies and and the eggnog and the Christmas parties and all the gifts, like everything is fine. And yet at the end of it, I still come out of the Christmas season feeling just kind of empty, kind of hollow, maybe kind of lonely, and Christmas maybe didn't used to feel like that for you, and now it does. And so we bring all of these life experiences with us into each new Christmas season, which means that Christmas can be filled with so much wonder and joy, and it also can be filled with things that are difficult. We all come here today with different past and current experiences of Christmas. And what my prayer is, what my hope is, is that as we all leave here today, we can, each one of us, can leave with an unshakable confidence knowing that the good news of Christmas is good news for me. And especially if you're here today and you are carrying a heavy weight, that is my prayer for you. So what we're going to do is we're going to spend a few moments looking at this passage. And as we look at Luke 2, which is a passage that is likely familiar to many of you, uh, we're going to see a contrast laid out for us in this passage. The contrast of the angel's announcement about who this child is and then the actual circumstances of this child's birth. And so we're just going to sort of observe that contrast and then see how this is good news for us in the midst of whatever we find ourselves facing today. 
So the first thing we can observe in the, past, in the passage this morning is the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. This passage is familiar, but it's good for us to be reminded of uh, this passage once again. In these first seven verses that you heard uh, so well read by our students this morning, uh, Luke is grounding the birth of Jesus in the historical reality of the Roman world and the Roman Empire in the first century world. And so you see him mentioning Caesar Augustus, who was the Roman emperor at the time. You see him mentioning Quirinius, who's this guy who's in governance over Syria. And what Luke tells us is that Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken. The census that they were taking was not like the census, uh, censuses, sensei, whatever you call it, uh, that we experience. They're mostly for the purpose of like, you know, population trends or demographic trends. Uh, the purpose of this census that was issued by Caesar Augustus was to make sure that everyone was accounted for and everyone was on the books so that everyone could be appropriately taxed by the Roman Empire, which is like the least thrilling form of census you can imagine. But this is the situation. And so Joseph, being from the town of Bethlehem, everyone had to travel to their hometown to register. And so Mary and Joseph traveled to uh, the city town of Bethlehem. And this was from where they lived in Nazareth. This was about a hundred mile journey. That's the equivalent of walking from here to the city of Rochester. And remember, this is the hill country. Of the, of, of the land of Israel. So this, isn't, this is not like walking 100 miles in North Dakota, where you can like see for 70 miles because there's nothing and it's all flat. This is 100 miles of walking through the hill country, and in that time, the only way that you made that journey was on foot. And so they made this journey, and this journey was at what was, humanly speaking, the worst possible time. Because Mary is very, very pregnant. So they make this journey to the city of Bethlehem. They don't have a choice. They go there to register at what was humanly speaking the very worst time. And I think all of us know that there are certain things that are just more difficult when you're away from home. I remember back when um, this was right before our second child, McKenna, was born. I think Dina was about seven and a half months pregnant and we went on a vacation. And we went to Tacoma, Washington. And so we had to make these calculated risks, right? Of like, okay, our doula's at home and the place we want to give birth is at home and all of our family and our friends and our support network is at home. Is it worth it for us to chance this and go to the opposite side of the country and risk having a baby away from all of that? Right? There are some things like having a baby that are like super hard in the first place. And then you add that you are totally away from your home, you're away from your element, you're, you're in circumstances where you don't want to be there, and it makes it even worse. So they make this journey uh, because they had to, they didn't have any choice. So they arrive in Bethlehem, and we're told that the baby was born, and that Mary wrapped this baby in cloths and lied him, laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. Now, when we hear this, uh, this language of, you know, there's no room for them, sometimes we have these pictures in our mind of Mary and Joseph, and this is like the absolute worst possible experience they could have ever had, right? Like Mary and Joseph, it's cold, and it's dark, and they're alone, and it's probably raining, because why not? And they're going around, and everyone is slamming the door in their face saying, you can't stay here, you know, and they walk into the Motel 6 just after her water burst and this gruff, scruffy-looking guy at the counter smiles and flicks on the no-vacancy light, right? 
Sometimes we can imagine it being that kind of a situation, but in reality, it wasn't like that. Remember, Joseph, this is his hometown. Joseph had family and relatives who lived in the city of Bethlehem. And so when it says that there was no guest room available for them, what it means is that all the spare bedrooms had already been occupied in all likelihood by other family members who were in town to register for the same census. In first century homes, there was a top level, an upper floor where you'd have your sort of sleeping area. And then on the main level, there was a living area and there was a kitchen area and there was a stable-like area where you'd have a place where your animals, if you had animals, would come in for the night. And so there would be a manger and there would be uh, this feeding trough and there would be, you know, the animals that were inside. And so this is the place where Mary and Joseph had to stay, not because they were alone and cold all by themselves in the dark, but because there was no room for them in the guest room with whoever it was that they were staying with at the time. But in any case, these are humble and humbling circumstances, right? These circumstances surrounding Jesus's birth are humble and they are humbling. This was an ordinary Jewish couple. Nothing impressive, nothing spectacular about them. They were an ordinary Jewish couple and they are here in Bethlehem making the best of a bad situation. They don't want to be there. And what we know for sure is that this isn't how they envisioned the birth of their first child, right? This is, this is not how they would have planned it if they were the ones to plan it. So even though their, their life experience and what we read about in this passage, this is like a non-repeatable set of events, we also know exactly what it's like to look at our lives and look at our circumstances and say, man, this is not how I would have planned it. This isn't how I would have written this story if I was the one who's in control of my life. And so we, we understand something of what Mary and Joseph experienced in that moment. We understand something of the, the disappointment. We understand something of the, uh, just the disheartening nature of what it, what it is to try and make the best of a bad situation. But these are the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. And now contrast this, contrast these set of circumstances with what we hear in the announcement from the angel. So we've got the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth, and secondly, we have the content of the angel's announcement. So at this point, if we, were, if we were watching this on film, the camera that's like zoomed in on Mary and Joseph and little baby Jesus and you know the animals and the, whoever from their family may have been there at the time, the camera zooms out and it pans over, and there's these shepherds that are just hanging out in the middle of a field, and it's pitch black, And they're just doing their job. They're just out there and their lives are completely interrupted by these angels. So listen to what it says. Verse 8. There were shepherds living in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. The angel said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So just get this picture in your mind of these, these shepherds, these totally unsuspecting shepherds who are startled by this great heavenly glory that shines around them. And this angel appears to them and says, hey, uh, don't be afraid, which is like easy for you to say. (laughs) You know, you're not the one who's experiencing you like I am. 
And he makes this announcement that there's this good news, there's this baby that's been born, and then there's this heavenly choir that appears around them. There's all these angels, and they're praising God. And all of this, all of the the, the spectacularness, all of the the beauty and and the magnificence of this is all to announce this little baby that's laying in a feeding trough. Just pay attention to the contrast here. Over here, you've got this poor Jewish couple who's making the best of a bad situation. They're there against their will in a way, and they're making the best of this bad situation. So that's what you have over here. And then over here, you've got the glory of heaven shining around these shepherds. And you've got this message of good news that's going to cause great joy for all the people in this heavenly choir. So just notice, uh, these two things don't seem like they belong together. And then, think about it like this. Over here, you've got this baby who, by every outward appearance, looks just like every baby who's ever been born in the history of the world. Right? Jesus didn't come out like with a halo. He didn't come out his face shining with the brilliance and the glory of God. He came out. Not going to give more details. <laughs> I've seen it twice. Uh, I won't give more details. But he came out looking just like every single baby who's ever been born before him. And this baby who came out looking as every other baby had is over here. And then over here, you've got these angels who are telling about the identity of this child. This child is a savior. This is God's deliverer. This is the rescuer that God promised to send, not to overthrow Israel's political enemies, but to rescue Israel and to rescue the world from our greater enemy, which is sin and death and the evil one. This child is not only a savior, this child is the Messiah. This is God's anointed one, who's been anointed with God's spirit to carry out God's mission of being a deliverer for God's people. This is the Lord. This is God himself who's taken on human flesh and who's accompanied us in our humanity and is now laying in a manger. And so what we can see from all of this is that the significance of this child's birth doesn't seem to match the circumstances. The significance of this child doesn't seem to match the, uh, the, the circumstances of his birth. But this is the good news of Christmas. The good news of Christmas is that God himself was not above the feeding trough. The good news of Christmas is that it was not beneath him to step into the brokenness and the darkness and the evil and the corruption that exists in our world. That we see and that we experience and that we in so many ways continue to perpetuate. It was not beneath him to step into that brokenness, to step into that darkness. He wasn't above that. There was absolutely nothing in us, there was absolutely nothing about us that would require that God had to do anything about our condition. There's no reason why God was forced or coerced in any way to rescue us, and yet it was because the overflow of his compassionate heart. Because God looks at people who are in desperate circumstances and his heart overflows and wells up with love for them, it's because of that that God sent his son. It's because his heart is good. It's filled with compassion and love. That God made a way for people who are spiritually dead to be made alive again. It's because of the compassion in his heart that God made a way for those of us who have been exiled away from God's presence because of our sin and our idolatry. We've been exiled from his presence. He's the source of life. He made a way for us to become brought back near again. He made a way for us to be brought back into his presence again. And he did so by sending us his son, the same son who we see lying in this manger. 
But this child would not only be placed in a manger, this child would also one day die upon a cross. And this is our hope this Christmas. Our hope is found in that Jesus' life both began and ended in circumstances that didn't match his identity. As we look at the cradle, Jesus laying in the manger, what we see is that this is the creator God. The creator God became a part of his created world. This is the source, this is the originator of all things, who's created every aspect of goodness and beauty that exists in our world. And this God became a part of his created world and did so not in luxury, not experiencing the best of the best and, you know, surrounded by royal attendants and and full of, you know, in a place that was wealthy and that was beautiful. This creator God took on creation, became a part of his created world and did so being born in a place that would make many of us plug our nose. This is the God who is worthy of all worship and adoration and praise And he was born without human fanfare. This is the most important person who's ever lived in the history of the world. And he was born to unimportant people who were essentially just like nobodies. And his birth was announced first to nobodies. It was announced to unimportant people. The the shepherds were the lowest of the social, you know, socioeconomic ladder of the first century world. And these are the kinds of people that Jesus, his birth was first announced to. So our hope is found that Jesus' life began with circumstances that didn't appear to match his identity, and the same is true of his death. As we look at the cross, what we see is that Jesus, who is God himself, now hangs on a Roman cross, which is a Roman torture device, and he's now surrounded by a different supporting cast. You look at his birth and you're like, you know, these are unexpected people that are going to be there for like the, you know, for God himself coming into the world. And you look at Jesus as he suffers and dies on the cross, and he's now surrounded by a different supporting cast. On both sides, he has criminals who are hurling insults at him. There's three, you know, the three of his disciples that haven't yet abandoned him are there with him. And there's a crowd of people who's also mocking him and insulting him and publicly shaming him on top of what was the most shameful way to kill someone that the Roman Empire had devised until that time. So Jesus is supported at his death by this, this supporting cast. And you look at this and you're like, this is the circumstances of his death. This is the son of God. You look at his birth and you say, these circumstances don't seem to match who this person actually is. And you look at his death and you say, these circumstances don't seem to match who this person actually is. And that is exactly the good news of Christmas. The good news is that God was not above the feeding trough and he was not above the cross. He wasn't too good for that. The good news is that he was not above that, but that he willingly humbled himself for us. The good news of Christmas is that we have a God who knows exactly what it's like to walk through the deepest darkness. He knows what it's like to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He knows what it's like to be abandoned, to feel forsaken. He knows what it's like to be lonely, to be let down by his closest friends and family. He knows exactly what that's like. And so what that means is that when we experience all of those things, Jesus, in every single one of those difficult things we experience, Jesus can look at us and say, I know exactly what you're experiencing. 
I've been forsaken. I've been abandoned. I've experienced physical pain like you may never know. I've experienced things that you will never understand. He knows. He understands. And that's the good news of Christmas. The good news is that God himself has made himself available to us. And because we know that he was willing to go so far as to take on human flesh, because he was willing to go that far, we know that he is with us no matter what we face. So we know as we look to not only the cradle, but as we look to the cross, we see that he has proven his love for us. We see that God has proven the lengths to which he will go to accomplish our deliverance and our salvation. And so what that means is that we, this Christmas and every Christmas, no matter what we are experiencing, we can experience it with a kind of ballast, with a kind of confidence knowing that he is with us and that he is for us. One of the ways that we get to respond to this good news is by coming to the communion table. One of the ways we get to respond to uh, this invitation to trust Jesus, to look at him in the manger, to look at him on the cross and to trust him, we can respond to that message by coming to the communion table. And as we do, we get to see the clearest example of God's love demonstrated for us in the person of Jesus, who was not only born and laid in a manger, but who suffered and died for us. And that's the good news this Christmas. So what I want to do is leave just a few moments for uh, silence, for us to have a moment of silence for confession and reflection. And then after that, we will um, come together and confess our sins together with a responsive reading and then confess the good news of the gospel together. So take a few minutes of silence and confession, and then we will come to the communion table.